0: Good afternoon, and thank you so much for being with us on this Thursday afternoon. It is cold, it is sunny, and we have a busy show coming up. We are starting out, though, uh, talking about something that was addressed. Mike Smith had BC's Transportation Minister on the program talking about a number of things, including the latest strike of infrastructure, and this was a truck hitting the Massey Tunnel, literally sending sparks flying. Take a listen to Hannah Greenway. She was driving just behind that truck.
1: So I was driving home from Richmond going to the Massey Tunnel and I got to the tunnel and it was already very backed up because they were taking care of the overpass that had been hit back in 2023 and a semi-truck in front of me hit the tunnel. Sparks and dust and then the truck hit its brakes. I hit my brakes too and waited to see... What was happening? He kind of looked stuck, and then a few cars behind me started to go around. So I started to go around. I wasn't sure because that lane was also closed.
0: Yeah, not a fun scenario. I used to commute through that tunnel every day, and uh, I can tell you that would not be. A fun truck to be behind and just seeing the truck hit and those sparks. And she also talked talked to Global News talking about the fact that, yes, she went around, cars went around, but you don't know at that point how hard the hit was, are things dangerous, what's happening. Well, joining me now to talk more about this is Trevor Halford, BC United Shadow Minister for Transportation, also the MLA for Surrey White Rock. Trevor Halford, thank you so much for taking the time today.
2: Thanks for having me, Joe. Uh,
0: what went through your mind? Uh, what is your reaction hearing about this latest strike?
2: Uh, you know, I, to, to say I was shocked, uh, I wish I could say that. I wasn't. Uh, you know, I think that, you know, unfortunately, what we're seeing is that this is this is now becoming common. Like, we've had over 30 of these strikes uh, in, in under 24 months. And, uh, you know, I grew up in the Lower Mainland. I don't remember any of this ever happening, but now it's... Uh, it's commonplace, and I, you know, it's it comes a sense where you go on Twitter and you know you, you see the memes and the jokes, and um, but at the end of the day, um, eventually our luck is going to run out, and somebody there's going to be a fatality, um, there's going to be serious injuries, and uh, I just you know it it, it scares me because uh, this is becoming commonplace, and uh, that we should never have gotten to this point.
0: This also happened and something else the witness, Hannah Greenway, said that she was already sitting in traffic because yeah. the construction, as many people in that area will know, the construction on 17A on that overpass, that got started just on Monday. So that's already yeah. causing traffic backups. And that construction is also because of a truck that slammed in to that overpass. Uh, is it is it legislation that's needed? Is it heavier fines? What do you think is needed in this is it measuring tapes for uh, people that that clearly can't uh, don't know how high their load is i mean where is the solution
2: well i think there's a there's a few solutions right and number one is is let's let's talk about the fines um now you know we what we've seen from the minister is we've seen a lot of tough talk a lot of frustration but this has been going on for over two years like i said over 30 strikes in under 24 months Uh, We think after the first, second, third, fourth, tenth one, um, we'd actually have a plan to try and reduce and eliminate these uh, incidents. So when we look at the maximum fines we have, they're completely inadequate. And what the minister said was he agreed, but um, he's hamstrung by the legislation that we have. Well, okay, you sit in cabinet. So to the minister and to Premier Eby, we just came out of a fall session. We have been dealing with these strikes for over two years and are you telling me that you could not get your act together enough to put forward legislation that would increase our ability to level these fines with these companies when we see this happen? And they've completely failed on that. So that's, that's one issue when we talk about the fines. The second issue is we've got to look at different things when it comes to education and things like that. And I think the Trucking Association has been very, very uh, accepting of that and uh, has been a good participant in good faith on that. But also, too, what are we doing in terms of some of the resources that we have, whether it could be sensors, different things like that, um, that we could be utilizing um, to help and make sure that we're trying to do our part as a provincial government to eliminate these accidents. And so far, we're getting strongly worded news releases and, and little action, and we're seeing that these incidences continue to happen.
0: Uh, You mentioned the fines and the penalties for this. I just want to play a bit of the exchange. And the Transportation Minister, Rob Fleming, was on with Mike Smith about an hour ago. And Mike asked him specifically about that.
1: Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the fines? You touched briefly on that. And I I recall your news conference recently where you talked about Mm -hmm. a massive increase in fines. How much are the fines now?
2: Well, they're five seventy-five, um, so they've, they've quintupled uh, from where they were. Uh, they are the highest in the country, uh, but we are committed also to review. 575 potential- hundred
1: and five hundred and seventy-five dollars—is that right?
2: Yeah, that's right. Okay. So that's the highest. That fine doesn't seem
1: for- like that. that. doesn't seem that high,
2: to me. Agreed, and uh, and we've been very public uh, about uh, reviewing potential legislative changes that would allow even higher fines. But that's the the limit under the law right now. It is the highest in the country.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of people would agree that $575 for this doesn't seem like a particularly uh, uh, onerous fine.
2: No. You can tell by the minister's uh, his reaction to that and, and how he laid out that answer. Either he has no idea what's going on on his file or he just doesn't have the aptitude to try and make the changes that are necessary. The, the, the overpass strike that we saw on Highway 99 Uh, that's in excess of $10 million worth of damage to that infrastructure. $10 million. And he's talking about a fine of $575.
3: $10
2: million worth of damage. That's not including all the transportation costs for the people that had to wait in line, all the other stuff that comes with it. We're talking about the infrastructure itself. And he is saying that he cannot get his priorities together to get legislation in front of the House that would increase those fines. So where do you for get, me as minister, that is completely coming up short.
0: Where do you get the $10 million figure from?
2: I actually got it on, I believe it was uh, from, I actually heard it on CKNW yesterday. I think it was Jazz.
0: Okay. All right. Just, I know there have been a few different numbers put out there, and that is yeah, one of the so big I've, questions. i that
2: actually figure on, on CKNW, so, but I can... I can try and get the exact figure on there, but it is it is definitely in the millions of dollars. Uh,
0: the minister also said during his interview with Mike Smith that this is a few bad apples that uh, we know of the one company with six infractions that we know of, that it's not as if every truck driver out there is is driving around and slamming into overpasses and hitting the Massey Tunnel, that it's a few bad apples that are doing this. I mean, if that's the case, I guess the good news is it's not a system-wide problem that's that's happening, and, and I get what you're saying, maybe sensors or things, but if it is the case that it's just a few bad apples, could that not be dealt with and in, in some way that doesn't doesn't require changes across the all of the infrastructure?
2: Oh, for sure, and I and 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 a lot of me agrees with that. And I'll give you an example. There is that, you know, when we had that incident where that that company had been, uh, you know, had had numerous strikes. Uh, of overpasses the ministry the minister quickly put out a release celebrating the fact that they had you know they had canceled uh you know those licenses and everything like that and you know and they did it very quickly and they got applauded for that and what do we find out 12 hours later well no they can register in alberta and they can drive in bc with registration in alberta and you're telling me that nobody the minister never asked the question when he put forward those policies what the loopholes are and now he's writing a strongly worded letter to the federal ministry to fix this. Give me a break. Like, I think people are, you know, the ministry has got to realize people are smarter than what he's selling right now. And there has to be a lot more done. You know, I'll give you another example is that when we look at the strike that happened on highway 99 and the overpass at 112 street, my colleague Dean Payton, the MLA for Delta South, he's written to the minister to say, listen, is like part of the Delta agricultural Plan." um, is that that's an extensive agricultural transportation corridor in these ladders. And those, that overpass, you know, they have to use farming equipment to get from A to B uh, for their farms to transport. And, you know, when that shut down, they're going to be at a massive disadvantage. So, you know, they need to make sure that that work gets done before the planting season. So, you know, when you look at, you look at all these strikes and what comes after and the economic impact, and, you know, this one specifically on the agriculture sector, Like, it's absolutely enormous.
0: Well, we are going to continue talking about this and uh, hopefully hear from the federal minister as well. Trevor Halford, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thanks, Javier. Earlier today, the Premier was asked about a story that has been circulating. This is taking place in Victoria, but certainly stories about it happening elsewhere. And that is condos that have been used for short-term rental properties, people trying to sell them ahead of the law in BC changing, and the law coming in that would restrict those rentals would make it so they couldn't actually be used for short-term rental as they're not principal residences and they don't fit the new, Uh, residential, the new rental laws that are coming into force in May. Well, the premier had some pretty harsh words for those. And take a listen to what he said.
4: I don't think anybody wants to see uh, people losing uh, their investment money, uh, regardless of the cause. Um, But I've got to be honest, uh, our government has been pretty frank with British Columbians since election uh, that we uh, have limited tolerance for people who are using our housing market as an investment vehicle instead of as a place to live. Uh, You will have seen our government take action on people holding homes empty as an investment through a speculation vacancy tax. Uh, You will have seen us uh, address uh, issues of uh, Airbnb, uh, and it wasn't like that came out of nowhere. We've been talking about addressing that uh, access for some time. Uh, So while uh, nobody wants to see these individuals lose money, uh, quite frankly, uh, they made a decision To invest in the housing market in a way that didn't create housing units, in fact took housing units away from people looking for a place to live, we're in a housing crisis, Uh, they shouldn't be surprised uh, that government has taken this direction. And anybody else, Uh, the flipping tax is coming. If your business is flipping houses, it is coming. This is your warning. The flipping tax is coming. Uh, Now is the time uh, to get out of that business and to put your money into something productive that helps build our economy for everybody.
0: All right, that was Premier David Eby speaking earlier today. Let's bring in Doug Gibson, real estate agent. He is with Stillhaven Real Estate Services. Doug, great to have you back on the show.
3: Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, I know a lot of the stories have been about one particular building in Victoria, the Janion building, where there are several owners saying they've put up these condos. They're about 300 square feet putting them up they were purchased to be rentals they've put them up for sale and are not getting offers for anywhere near what they're asking and again I'm sure there are people like the premier who who don't have a lot of sympathy but what are your thoughts on what is happening and and with this new legislation coming into place
3: well you know I definitely feel for the people that bought in these areas of Victoria where Airbnb was allowed um, you know because they did purchase that for that use so you know, when you look at it, these, these units are under 400 square feet. They're really small. I'm actually looking at them right now. I've got it on my computer and I've got several in Victoria, um, even, you know, and I'm looking in Vancouver when you're, when you're under 450 square feet, it's really hard to have a space that actually feels like it's your home and that you want to purchase it. I I mean, these, these ones, uh, and you know, on Pandora Avenue, um, I don't know if they have a washer or dryer. I don't know where you're supposed to put anything. I mean, you, can, you basically got to have a pair of shoes and a pair of boots and maybe a flip-flops. So, you know, I, it's tough that this is happening. And I, I almost think there should be an exception for this space because, you know, you can't rent them out. And they have sold. Like, there's a couple that have sold. One that was uh, 302 square feet sold for 375000 and one one that was 353 square feet sold for 395. And I think the other mitigating factor is that interest rates are high. So the, the market has been slower in general. It's been more balanced. And I always say to clients, you know, look at your micro product, you know, for example. So if you're selling... A $3 million home, that's been really slow in the last couple of years, last year, but a starter home isn't, and the, and the lower end of each product range um, to a certain extent. So I, I'd have a, I could see myself if I had to live in maybe 450 or 500 square feet, and it's really nice if there's a separate room. So these units, are, are I think, are challenging to live in.
0: Do you think, though, something you mentioned, too, that and that's what a lot of the owners are saying, that they bought these units exactly for that reason. At the time, they bought Airbnb or whatever short-term rental platform you were using. It was completely legal. I know there was one woman, I'm sure there's more than one, saying this was, was her investments and her retirement plan because it was legal uh, do you think that in cases like this and maybe it's based on square footage that there should be some units or this building grandfathered in
3: i mean to a certain extent i do actually joe like i think there's also a hotel uh, you know and room issue i mean when you know to go over to victoria if we go here from vancouver it's over 300 dollars a night um and I, I definitely think there's a housing crisis. I definitely think we need to be building more. I, I'm glad that they're legalizing suites um, and uh, and offering more options. But, yeah, honestly, I think you get to a point where this feels like – some of them look like my, my dorm room in residence, you know, plus a kitchen. Like, there's no desk, there's a kitchen. <laughs> and so with these spaces, you know, the one realtor was saying that these spaces were – zone for Airbnb and they paid a premium for that. So, you know, if these people bought more than two years ago, they're probably not going to be underwater. They're not, they're not going to be losing money. So, you know, that's, I don't think they're out um, from, from their original purchase necessarily, but uh, yeah, it, I think another mitigating factor is interest rates. So, you know, you got to think about who's buying these. Like it's, I mean, if it's a student, you know, an investor could buy it and rent it out to students. There's just not a lot of people that want to purchase, you know, a a, a unit under 375 square feet.
0: Right. So there might not be a lot of people who want to purchase that, but I'm guessing there there would be people that would be interested in renting it. And I know that comes into the long term rent on a unit like that is not going to be anywhere near what somebody is going to make on Airbnb. But I think, too, that maybe that's the point of this legislation and the government saying you don't actually have to sell. You could find someone to rent it.
3: Yeah, that's true. And and I think one mistake that the government made when they took out short term rentals is to not be able to have, you know, a three month short term rent rental turns into month to month. Like, you know, so it's hard to it, it's hard to even have a place that you own that you're going to be there nine months of the year. To have a three month person in there for three months that might work, you know, people get a flood, they might need a place to live, all these sort of things. So that's, all, that's made it challenging. But um, yeah, there, you, you, like I said, you could rent it out. But again, Joe, it's, it is so small that it's, it's hard to, it's hard to live in these little spaces.
0: This is happening, and this is a building in Victoria, and and Doug, I know you work in in many parts of Metro Vancouver as well. Do you think we're going to see this, or are we seeing this happening in other cities and other areas?
3: Um, you know, in Vancouver, less so, because they've had Airbnb rules for, for some years now, so I think people have been um, much more cautious about it. I've had buyers over the years say, oh, I want to be able to Airbnb it, and You for the longest time in city of Vancouver was had a basic you had to be able to minimum one month rental and then Stratas had minimum one month or three months or somewhat so there's only been a couple buildings that have been working around that so I don't think it's going to be as big an issue here and you know there's more people probably willing to live in smaller spaces here but no I don't I don't think it's going to be as big an, an, an issue here you know for some people in their homes they're they're probably upset because if they don't have an attached stairs down to like a suite then they can't airbnb anymore but that's for that's specifically who the government wanted to not be renting out a suite they wanted to make that as a rental unit and i hear that because that's a nicer bigger space you can get a, even maybe even a family in there so no i think i think in the lower mainlands um this, this won't, this won't be too much of an issue. And, and I mean, it really they're really cracking down on Airbnb and making, you have to, it has to be your primary residence. So you could, you could rent out a condo, your, your, your condo, if it's your primary residence on Airbnb, if the condo building allows it for a month, so you still can do it, but it has to be your primary residence.
0: Yeah, exactly. And you mentioned something, Doug, too, that doesn't get talked about all that much. And again, this would be more of an issue for specifically the owners in the Janion building, the building in Victoria, but the interest rates and the fact that when this legislation was announced, and even though the premier said nobody should be surprised by this, we're still at the mercy of the Bank of Canada and at these rates. And it's not a great time for people to be on mass selling.
3: Yeah, and and that's just uh, you know you're just you're just I guess I don't I shouldn't say the three letters but you know <laughs> you're not, you're out of luck, um, and in the in the e doesn't care and they don't care about any of that sort of stuff and I think that's the risk you take when buying an investment place. I mean when you buy, you, you take the risk of where where the market's going to be at at this time. So it, it you know I mean what do I got to say? It sucks. It sucks that these people bought them in that in that area zone for this and there was multiple areas zone in that for Victoria. Um, it doesn't seem like they want to make an exception, which they often don't. So I think this will play out. But I mean, they, the places are selling, right? Like mm-hmm. I said, there's some and there's not a ton on the market right now. So whether or not they sold or came off the market or rented, there's not 20 units for sale right now.
0: Right. Well, we are going to continue uh, watching this and see how it plays out and in other areas as well. Doug, always great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Happy New Year, Jill. Thank you so much. Thanks for being here this afternoon. Well, we know that things are getting more and more expensive. We have talked on this program many times about the cost of food, the cost of just about Everything And more and more people turning for to different places to get help, perhaps places they've not turned before, and it can be very difficult. So, well, this is also having a big impact not only on families, well, all different types of families and sizes of families and families with pets. And that is leading to some cases of families being forced to make very, very heartbreaking decisions. And joining me to talk a little bit more, about this is A.L. Lichtman, CEO of the Regional Animal Protection Society. A.L., thank you so much for taking the time today.
1: Really good to be with you, Jill. Thank you. (laughs)
0: This is such a sad thing to think about uh, that families forced to make uh, literally life and death decisions when they're dealing with their pets because of finances, Uh, not health concerns, but solely based on finances. Is this something that is happening more or that you're seeing more?
1: We're definitely seeing it more. And it's really, really unfortunate. It's called economic euthanasia. And people are having to make decisions, especially on very complicated cases where the cost of veterinary care is so high they can't afford it that they're given the opportunity to euthanize their animal instead of treating it.
0: And are these cases where if uh, the money was available, if people could afford it, uh, cases where there are animals that that would be fine if they got the treatment?
1: Uh, In most cases. Um, sometimes you do treatments, you don't know if the animal's going to survive or not, but you know, like in human care, we want to do the treatment to see that the animal can survive, uh, you know specific treatments. But in most cases, I would say yes, it is treatable and we can find solutions.
0: And when that happens, when somebody is, is making that decision, and it's because solely because of finances, and they are deciding that they're going to euthanize the pet because they can't afford it, how is, is that received? I, I mean, I would imagine that there's every attempt to try and find a solution, but that's got to be really difficult as well for people, uh, the veterinarian and people uh, at the veterinary care clinic.
1: And that's what we call PTSD in veterinary care, and it's really, really hard on the staff, on the veterinarians, on the vet techs and vet assistants, um, knowing that they can save an animal, but because the money isn't there, the treatment isn't provided, and at our non-profit animal hospital, we get a lot of those referrals from all over B.C.,
0: do people inquire or uh, d- look at options of, of putting animals up for adoption?
1: Um, so that's also difficult because they would approach the different uh, shelters. So most municipalities have an animal shelter where they want to surrender the animal. But usually if an animal has, um, you know, very expensive medical Uh, Care situations, they're not always taken in by the animal shelters and the animal shelters themselves can't afford to take on that medical care um, or they're full.
0: Right. Uh, and when we look at the type of veterinary care that is now available and anybody, I think, that has had an animal that has needed any kind of, of treatment or has been sick or, or had something broken or needed surgery, uh, people know it, it is expensive. Um, I'm not saying it's, it's not worth it, that it is a very, very uh, much needed service. But has it become more expensive in that it seems like there are more treatments or more testing and diagnoses that, that really kind of mirror what we have at human hospitals.
1: That is absolutely correct, Jill. Um, so basically, it's private health care. That's what veterinary care is. Now, our hospital is not for profit, but most of the veterinary care out there is private uh, vet care. So a lot of the modalities that were available are available in human health care, are now available in um, veterinary care. And Canadians are used to socialized medicine where they go into a hospital, they get all the treatment, they come out, they don't see a bill. So when they come for veterinary care, they're shocked at the cost because you're doing x-rays, you're doing ultrasounds, you're doing blood work, you're doing urine work, Um, all of these things and surgeries and so forth cost a lot of money. It's sort of like American health care when you hear that people lose their homes over the fact that they're trying to save their lives. Well, these expenses are absolutely identical in veterinary care. It's just that they're not subsidized by the government.
0: Right, and and uh, you're right. We don't uh, even if we were given a bill to see, not not saying that people uh, to pay the bill, but even to see it, uh, I think would be eye opening for people to to get a better idea on what our healthcare actually costs us when we go uh, to hospitals or to healthcare to care centers. Uh, do, do veterinary clinics? Do you think? Do, do, I know sometimes people will often suggest that it's too expensive or that they're being gouged or being taken advantage of because uh, it's very well known that for many people, pets are part of the family and we will do anything for them. But is it unfair, do you think, that because maybe the cost of these things isn't well known and and out there, that, that people think that vet, veterinarians are charging too much?
1: No. Um, I think what's happening is, is that the costs have increased across the board. First of all, there's a scarcity of veterinarians. So the cost of attracting and getting a vet to work at your clinic is, is a lot more expensive. Also, it's a lot more expensive to live in the lower mainland to attract those people here. So, you know, just the overall cost for veterinarians and veterinary technicians has um, has risen uh, dramatically. So, right. So, um, and in, in addition to that, everything else, all of our supplies and everything have gone up.
0: Uh, like everything else, uh, that uh, so many things cost more. And so not a huge surprise there that, that everything in this, in this industry costs more as well. What about the issue of pet insurance? Is that something that would that make a difference, do you think, if more people had pet insurance? I know there are limitations there, but would that, would that make a difference?
1: It would make a huge difference. Now, most people um, don't take out, I think, somewhere between 3 to 5% of Canadians take out pet insurance, um, and it costs anywhere from $75 to $200 a month, depending on what uh, plan you take out. But, you know, if you have a dog hit by car, the surgery can be between five dollars to $10,000, and this stuff helps. Um, mitigate that cost. Some insurance, you know, gives you $5,000 a year, some give you upwards of 10000 or cover all the costs. So we strongly recommend taking out vet insurance.
0: Yes, I would. I would put myself in that group as well. Is that uh, I am somebody without pet insurance, and I have a dog that developed glaucoma, and uh, it was an expensive, expensive treatment plan. But again, I, I totally get it that people will do, and I would put myself in that category that I would do anything to 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 make sure the dog is okay and gets treatment. Which is why I find this story so heartbreaking that people are having to make those decisions. And like you said, this this economic Euthanasia. What else do you think could be done? I know there's a petition out asking for changes. What other changes do you think would actually help this?
1: So we have uh, two initiatives on the go. One is we're doing a petition to get the government to make veterinary uh, care tax deductible. Uh, Pets are part of our families um, and when you go under that immense expense, we think the government should recognize that our communities are healthier because of pets and that pets are now recognized no longer as as chattel uh, within the family, they're considered part of the family. So the first part is to get government to help subsidize this through tax deductions. And the second is to ask the insurance companies that provide extended medical and through corporations to make it part of a benefits plan for your employees. And you're going to attract a lot more employees and, and maintain your employees, uh, retain them, because you're offering, let's say, up to $3,000 a year in veterinary care as part of that plan. So it's a 2 prong approach, government and industry, trying to help out families with veterinary care. And I believe over 50% of Canadians have pets.
0: Hmm. It's an interesting idea, both of those. Are there any places that you know of that are already doing that?
1: No, we don't think that there are any places uh, doing it. And um, we think it's, you know, our society has evolved to the point that this is the time uh, to be doing that.
0: Did things change as well uh, during the pandemic when we know a lot of people did bring pets into their homes and and did get those furry companions because they were spending more time at home? Uh, Do you think that is adding to this in that, uh, like you said, the the over 50% number, there are just so many people that now have pets that maybe didn't five, ten years ago?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, and a lot of places are also becoming more pet-friendly. So there's a lot more people having pets. There's a lot more millennials that, that have pets, and um, our society overall is becoming more pet-friendly. So you can take them in carriers on buses. You can take them into stores. Some restaurants allow you to have them. There's uh, cat cafes. Just It's exploded everywhere. So, yes, there's a lot more pets uh, being adopted uh, within our society.
0: So the petition and the, the two prongs that you mentioned, one, making vet expenses tax deductible and also making pet expenses part of the benefits package, um, the, the petitions are out there for people to sign. Uh, do you have a goal as far as signatures or what is the plan then for the petition after maybe uh, after people have had a chance to sign it?
1: So we're trying to get the petition signed across Canada, not just in our region, and we're hoping to get tens of thousands of people uh, to sign on. We're hoping that a lot of veterinary clinics uh, will support this as well because it helps them uh, with their clients that they don't have to turn people away if more people can afford uh, veterinary care. And, yeah, so I think once we get uh, up to a certain number of of 100,000 or so uh, signatures That would be a great goal. Then look at how we can approach different politicians and stuff to get this on the radar. We have been pushing certain uh, political groups to get this into their into their platforms for the next election to at least start talking about it. But in hopes that after the next election, this will become policy.
0: It, it would be uh, amazing to see that uh, if that change was made, and also to see uh, what kind of feedback or what kind of response you're getting to the petition. I know that the RAPS Animal Hospital, the nonprofit uh, that that you are with, uh, you do a lot of of partially or fully subsidized care and do help out households in that in that sense. Do you think more veterinary clinics are doing that, or there there are they are finding ways to try and stop this this economic euthanasia to find those solutions?
1: Well, I think every veterinary clinic cares deeply about this, right? And a lot of um, clinics don't necessarily have the capacity um, to do everything that you know possibly can be done. Um, we're subsidized. Um, we are, like, like you said, nonprofit, so we get funding from grants and from fundraisers and from donors. Um, to help subsidize the public, also through our thrift stores, uh, raising money. Um, yeah, so we think that uh, definitely um, more clinics should be going the nonprofit route. We, we would like to open our clinics across Canada. We have come across the fact that some provinces do not allow not for profit veterinary clinics, and we think that's not right. And we think that'll be challenged in the future as well. But definitely, nonprofit where both the public and corporations and government can help subsidize veterinary care is the way to go.
0: Well, AL, thank you for joining us today and for bringing more attention to this. Appreciate your time.
1: We really appreciate giving us the platform. Thank you.